I'm sure glad that that lightning did not strike when I was up here preaching because I would think, oh, glory, what have I said wrong? A few years ago, I lived in the Dallas area. This is way back before my ministry years. And I had a good friend and his wife lived in this little cul-de-sac subdivision over in Arlington of new, all new homes out there and he was not a Christian. His wife was Catholic but I'm not sure about her salvation either but anyway I was over there they invited me over for dinner and so I went over there and uh, he was telling me that the guy four houses down lightning had struck that house and he, he Tommy said, right, hey, that was, that's a Christian that lives in that house. And he said, you know what the guy across the street said about that? I said, I have no idea. He said, well, I'm sure glad the Lord doesn't know where I live. So who knows? The Lord is in control of all that, isn't he? The heavens. Sometimes it'll, I don't, where I live, it'll just thunder, it get dark, thunder, lightning, and rattle the house. Not a drop of rain. And the next time, I'm not, I don't even realize it, there's a deluge out there. It's just flooding, you know. God is in control of that. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, chapter, uh, uh, verses 3, excuse me, through 6. How we know, we know is the subject today. And our, we'll read verses 3 through 6 in a moment. A little bit of a review, John, right off in verse 1 of chapter 2, states his purpose. And his purpose and all that he shared in the first chapter is not to promote sin, but to prevent sin. And he said, though, and there, if we should sin, not talking about a continual behavioral issue here, but if a believer should sin, should commit a sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's not only our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is also the propitiation, verse 2, for our sins. That means the Lord Jesus Christ took our place and he appeased, propitiated, means to appease, the wrath of God against our sin, meaning this, God's holy, righteous indignation, settled indignation against our sin. The Lord Jesus Christ took our place on Calvary's tree and appeased the wrath of God, made satisfaction, is another way you could say it, made satisfaction against the righteous, uh, the righteous indignation of God, and thus it would not be a violation of his holy nature but in keeping with it, that we could be justified because our sins have been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that was done specifically and uniquely and only for the elect of God, chosen before the foundation of the world. Those that God, the Father, was pleased to give to His Son, to be adopted into God's family through the son's sacrificial death on the earth. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 says there was only one mediator 
one and only, between God and man, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. And he also is the only one <laughs> that would do this. He's the only one that could do this. He gave himself as a ransom for us. Robert Haldane was a, wrote a commentary on Romans. He lived, uh, born in 1764, lived into 1842 or so. And uh, what, what he wrote, speaking, this is on his commentary on Romans, but he's speaking about the crucifixion and, and the Lord Jesus' propitiation for us. And it just moved me when I read it. I'd like to share it with you. Dr. Haldane writes, In all this we see the Father assuming the place of judge against his Son in order that to become the Father of those who were his enemies. The Father condemns the Son of his love that he may absolve us, may free us from guilt, the children who otherwise were nothing but children of wrath. If we inquire into the cause that moved God to save us by such means, what can we say but that it proceeded from his incomprehensible wisdom, his ineffable goodness, and the unfathomable depth of his mercy? For what was there in man that would in, could induce the creator to act in such a manner, since he saw nothing in man after his rebellion by sin, but what was hateful and offensive. And what was it but his love that passes knowledge, which induced the only begotten Son of God to take the form of a servant, to humble himself even to the death of the cross, and to submit to be despised and rejected of men. These are the things which angels desire to look into. But besides the love of God, we see the wonderful display of his justice in condemning sin in his son, rather than letting it go unpunished. And this assuredly, the work of redemption surpasses that of creation. In creation, God had made nothing that was not good, and nothing especially in which he could exercise the rigor of his justice. But here, he punishes our sins to the utmost, and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If it be inquired, if, when God condemns sin in his son, we are to understand this of God the Father so as to exclude the son, or if we can say that God the Son also condemns sin in himself, this is undoubtedly affirmed. For in the Father and the Son, there's only one will and one regard for justice, so that, as it was the will of the Father to require satisfaction for sin from the Son, it was also the will of the Son to humble himself and to condemn sin in himself. We must, however, distinguish between Jesus Christ, considered as God, and as our surety or mediator. As God, he condemns and punishes sin. As, as mediator, he himself is condemned and punished for sin.
You know, there's only one way to the Father. The Father designed the way. The Son paved the street, the glory for his elect. And no other religion is like this. No other religion. Of course not. This supersedes the mind of man. Not a man on the planet would ever conceive an idea of how to go to God this way. How to gain favor with that unknown God out there. This way. No one. This is beyond the mind of man. This is the work of God Almighty alone. So Jesus Christ and his advocacy for us <laughs> appeased the wrath of God that was due to us representing himself as a sinless sacrifice. He's the only one that would, and he is the only one that could do that, ransoming us from the slave market of sin. And now, by virtue of his endless life, he's there interceding for all of us. Saved us to the uttermost. Positionally, we are in him. He is interceding for us without cessation. Well, let's read our text. 1 John chapter 2, 3 through 6. Hereby do we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. Truth's not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily, is of love God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought to walk also as he, even as he walked. Let's pray together. Holy Father, I love you. We all love you. We're grateful, Father, that you chose to save us. And you did through that sacrifice, brutal, cruel, brutal sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our stead, for our sin, appeasing your holy wrath against our sin. Oh God, we're here to worship today, Father. Facilitate our worship, Lord. Quicken our hearts. Quicken our minds. Quicken our bodies, our souls to worship you as we examine these words from your word. May it be done by your glory, for your glory and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. How we know, we know. You see someone, everyone will say, if you know, you know. This is that, sort of. How we know, we know. Hereby do we know him if we keep his commandments. By this we know. What? By this. Well, he starts off that sentence with the word and. It's a uh, conjunction. Little uh, Greek word, chi, k-i, k-i, and. It's a marker of subordinate uh, relations, okay? 
things that are together, like Joseph and David, Mary and Martha, peace and grace. It's, it's a, a conjunction of coordinate relationships. And so doing, though, and, he says, and, he really ties back verse 3 with the second half of chapter 1. Because he'd been talking about fellowship with God. He pointed out what walking in the light is fellowship with God. But it requires that we be faithful and consistently confessing our sins. Verse 9. Then he adds, knowing God means keeping his commandments. In other words, he introduces the concept of knowing God as a synonym for fellowship with God. Knowing God is a synonym for fellowship with God. So, then knowing God and fellowship with God are really two sides of the same spiritual coin. To know God, to abide in the Lord, to have fellowship with Him, has always been the quest of the human spirit. Everywhere on the planet one might travel, there's always something going on in that little tribe or that community, something. There's some form of worship because there is, by the creative genius of Almighty God, a consciousness within humankind, there's someone out there that is orchestrating all that except some of those demented ones that live in America that don't understand that. God made this. There's someone out there. And so we must do something. We feel a responsibility to him. So let's, let's make us some gods. Let's make us an altar. Let's do something, for goodness sake, to make sure that we appease him. Now, why would they do that? Why would an, an illiterate group of people seek to appease him. Two reasons. Number one, they knew someone's out there. Number two, they knew they had sin. They might not have known that word sin particularly, but they knew that they didn't do right all of the time. And they didn't want to offend someone out there that might not appreciate their inappropriate behavior, language, or whatever. So man-made religions... Always trying to reach out to God, to appease, as Paul said, the unknown God. They had an extra God over there, right? They want to make sure they covered all the bases. Augustine said it right when he said that God has made man for himself and that men are restless until they find their rest in God. Boy, that is the gospel truth, isn't it? We are restless as human beings until we find that completeness, that wholeness found only in the person and the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're restless until we find our home safe in him. Well, to the praise and glory of God, our position in fellowship with him is secure. If you're born of God, your position in fellowship with God is secure. By virtue of the fact you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption, which is the redemption of your body. 
and your position is secure. However, the intimacy of your fellowship, in my, uh, your fellowship with God and my fellowship with God, the intimacy of our fellowship with Him may rise and fall. It will rise and fall based upon our obedience, the level of our obedience to Him. Okay? We may have some mountaintop experiences where we've been really cooking along, walking in obedience to the Lord. And then the flesh moves in. It can so subtly do its times. And we drift a little bit. And all of a sudden, the intimacy level goes down. And we feel it. That's why David said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You know why he said that? Because he's missing what he had. Have you been there? I have. But fellowship with God, being positionally secure, it is. I'm saved and I know it. I hope, I hope I'm living in such a way that you know it. <laughs> and you're saved and you know it. We have fellowship with God through the new birth. But fellowship with God is just not riding along for the trip. Just riding on the, the coattails of sovereign grace through the Lord Jesus Christ all the way to glory. It's far more than that. A few years ago, two or three years ago, whatever it was, I had the opportunity to drive one of these self-driving cars, so to speak. It's got that adaptive cruise control, and the road curves, it would curve, and it was fascinating. My car doesn't have that. It's not that new. But I had to go to Fort Worth to my daughter's, and I drove it over there and drove it back, and, you know, I got behind this 18-wheeler coming home, and, wow, it was kept the same precise distance between me and that truck all the way. He sped up, I'd speed up. When he'd slow down, I'd slow down. So I was doing the rhythm of him on the hills, up and down, you know, all of this. And the road would curve, and it would curve. And I thought, this is fascinating. So I just sat there and watched it. But all of a sudden, this light would flash on the this panel up there and say, put your hands on the wheel. Put your hands on the wheel. That's the way it is with us. See, you know, we talk about GPS all the time. With GPS, think about this. GPS stands for God's provided spirit. And so rather than just coasting along, we've got enough salvation. We don't have to worry about hell. We're comfortable, and so we're just drifting along. The Holy Spirit will convict us and say, put the wheel, put the hands on the wheel of your life. You're disobeying the Father. This is a sin. That's a sin. The Holy Spirit nudges us and encourages us to grip the wheel of our life and get back in the groove in the center of the will of God. It's not just going along for the ride. And all disobedience is sin. I don't want to sound legalistic, but you know something? Drifting along is sin. What's our chief motive? What is our chief motive to obey God? For any man to obey God. Is it fear of punishment in this life? Is it the desire to avoid hell for the next life? Kind of like obedience is kind of like paying the premium on a 
life insurance or fire insurance policy of some sort? Is it the thought of getting from God if I do this for God? Is it the goal of gaining some more knowledge about Him than some of my peers so I can be puffed up with what I've learned? You know, every single one of those will motivate you for a while, but they won't last. But this won't last. Because they're all carried out in the energy of the flesh to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Self-preservation. That's what it is. Self-preservation. Be sure I cover my base with the Lord. Get some more. Don Calvin said it well. Slavish and constrained obedience differs little from rebellion. <laughs> That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Boy, he was one homely looking guy, you know? Slavish and constrained obedience differs little from rebellion. But I'll tell you one thing. He understood the doctrines of grace. I love his commentaries. The only lasting motivation for obedience is love for God. Genuine love for God. That's it. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? 13, Mark 12, 30, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, he said. And ladies and gentlemen, that kind of love can only come, that, that potential, let me rephrase that. The potential for that kind of love is only found in the heart of a person that has been redeemed by the sovereign grace of God. Only found in a redeemed person's heart. But notice that I said potential. The potential for that. A good question to ask ourselves is, am I right now, or are you right now, loving the Lord God with all your heart, and your soul, and your mind, and your strength? You say, well, of course, we showed up for worship today. But what about Tuesday and Wednesday, or Friday? Are we loving the Lord with all our heart, our soul and mind and strength. And some of them might say, well, that's you just being legalistic. Well, I, no, I didn't say that. Jesus did. <laughs> that's what Jesus said. We're to love the Lord that way, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. An all-encompassing love. What does it do? Well, there's some blessings there, Okay. There's some blessings in this all-encompassing love. We have an all-encompassing love for the Lord. You know what it does? It drives out lesser things that are nothing but distractions that temporal. A waste of time in so many cases. It'll drive out those things. And we get down the road and look back and say, Oh, wow. Praise God I didn't waste time doing that. Or this. Or the other. 
Alexander McLaren was a British pastor, lived just into the, well, to 1910. He said, the principle that underlines these words then is this, that love is the foundation of obedience. And it is. He's right. And obedience is the, <laughs> the obedience is a sure outcome and result of love. We know that, don't we? Love is the foundation of obedience, and obedience is a sure outcome and result of love. You know, my old daddy asked me to do things sometime I just flat did not want to do. Man, it was hot out there in those cotton patches. Walking in that old loose dirt, chopping cotton. I didn't want to do that. But I did. Now, I knew there would be a consequence for disobedience, but that wasn't the issue. I love that man. And that, man. that man was doing everything he could, season in and season out, season out, to provide for us. And I did it. Wasn't comfortable. Wasn't pleasant. One of our cotton patches, the, wheel, the roads were so long, we had to have a water jug on both ends. But I did it because I loved that man. I loved him. And you know something? You do what you do because of what you love the most. Yeah. If we love God the most, all our heart, our mind, our soul, our body, our strength, we're going to show it by our obedience unto him. And the, addition, the issue at hand is not obtaining some level of perfect obedience. That's why John said, if you sin, right, we have an advocate. But this is having a heart that wants to live that way. A heart that doesn't want to sin. A heart that wants to obey because we love our Father. Our heart's filled with Him and we desire Him to be pleased, we have a desire to obey him in all that we do. You know, that song, it's uh, years ago, had this line in it He ain't heavy, he's my brother. Remember something like that? He ain't heavy, he's my brother. Maybe I'll get Roger to write us a song that says, His commandments aren't heavy, he's my father. And I love him. His commandments aren't heavy. In fact, John, farther over in the book, we'll find later on, he tarries. He says his commandments are not grievous. What makes them not grievous? What makes God's commandments not heavy? Because we love him. That's why. Then there are those who know him not. They don't keep his commandments. Regardless of their profession, what they're saying with their lips. He that saith, I know him, verse 4, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. They may have walked an aisle somewhere along the line, filled out a card, prayed the sinner's prayer with a preacher, accepted Jesus as their own personal Savior, were baptized upon that profession, 
now listed as a church member somewhere, maybe here, maybe even been on a mission trip or two. But if they do not keep the commandments of God, the profession, their profession of knowing the Lord is a lie. Because the profession of their life speaks louder than their profession of their lips. Titus 1, 15, 16. Under the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and their conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. Thus revealing that the truth of God, as the word here says, does not abide in them. You know something? If you know, you know. And if you don't, everybody else knows it it's too. We don't false professions don't really fool anyone for long, do they? The blessing of those who actually know him and keep his commandments. Well, well. You mean we get something for this? Oh, yes. (laughs) There are blessings associated with keeping God's commandments. What is it? In him, those who keep his word, in him or her is the love of God perfected. And then he says, hereby we know that we are in him. The love of God is perfected in you because you're obeying his word and keeping his word. And because it's being perfected in you, this love of God, you know it. You know him by witness in you that your love is being perfected for him. The word keepeth there is tereo. It means to carefully watch, keep, guard, so forth. It's to watch over the word of God with the intent of carefully and prayerfully obeying the word of God. I guess it goes without saying, if I'm going to carefully and prayerfully obey the word of God, I need to spend a lot of time in it, don't I? I need to be in this word of God every single day. I need to be storing up the treasures of God in my heart and soul. That's his word. So I know, I know his word. And can watch over my behavior in the mirror of his word. Well, in him, this person will do that. The love of God is perfected. That perfected word there, what does that mean? It means complete, perfect, finished. It's a present tense verb, by the way. And that means that action in the past has contributed to and established a state of being that is existing now and into the future. Got it? Past action has created and this state of being that we're in now, and it maintains it into the future. That's a present tense verb action. Thus, obeying the Lord produces this result in us. It's the perfecting of his love in us. It's bringing it into completion in us. And by the way, there are some that would say, well, no, wait, you got that wrong. 
this perfecting of the love, it's, it doesn't say that. It says, it's, Verily is the love of God perfected. Let me ask you a question. I like a good argument for, you know, looking at the Greek dynamics there. I like a good argument for that. But let me ask you this. God so loved the world that he sent his son. And with his son, he has freely given us all things to pertain to life and godliness. Now, are you going to perfect on that by your behavior? I think not. God is love, perfect in love. And we do not make any contribution to that by our behavior. But rather the love of God is perfected in us. That means it's, uh, it's growing to maturity in us. So we're getting, because we're obeying the Lord, we're getting, we find that we love him more and more and more. Because you grow in faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, how does that all work out in the dynamic? It means this, that as you follow the Lord and you obey this and you do this and you, say, you look back and say, wow, that worked. The Lord did and so forth. And you grow in faith and you grow in love right along with it. That's the process of sanctification. And you'll definitely know, we'll definitely know that we're growing in love for the Lord. We'll know it. Experientially, we'll know that the love we have for our Lord is growing, is increasing. How do we know that? Because we will know it because we can see its impact, recognize its impact on our attitudes and our behavior. And you know what? Others will know that as well. John Calvin said, bless his heart, love that guy. He said this, obedience is a mother of piety. Many reverence for God. Obedience is the mother of piety and the mistress of humility. That's true. As I obey the word of God, submit unto him, because he resists the proud. Goodness, I don't want to be proud. I want to get rid of that. As I walk in the word of God, obeying him, I find that these virtues that the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated are coming real in my own life and in your life. Well, get down to verse 6. How should those who say they abide in Christ ought to walk? Here's a real heavy theological answer. Just like he did. <laughs> That's what the scripture says. To walk like the Lord walked. Back to that word abideth. That word abideth. It's again another present tense active verb. It means to lodge with. To abide. To stay put there. It means they were continually abiding in him. Ought. Presence, that's word of philo. That means to be presently 
and continually obligated. Those of us who are redeemed by grace, we are presently and continually obligated to walk as he walked. And walk is the word peripateo. It means to live or behave the way he did. To conduct our conversation, as Paul used the term, his way. To serve God with our lives, walking as he walked. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you? You have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, I glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Body refers to outer contact, uh, conduct. Excuse me. And spirit is what goes on between our ears and our heart. We're to glorify God in all of us, all parts of us, right? Body, mind, spirit, so forth and so on. Our, temp- our bodies are the naos. That's, a, that's the word used for the Holy of Holies. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He has been given to us by God to indwell us. That makes us his temple. What is a temple for? Worship. A temple is for worship. Our bodies thus have one supreme purpose to glorify God. The Westminster Catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God. And you know what the second part of that answer is? And to enjoy him forever. I'm going to tell you something. This world has nothing to offer. I don't care how many rodeos and whatever you've been to. This world has nothing to offer that compares with fellowship, intimate fellowship with God. Nothing. Lesky said another commentator, to glorify, to glorify God in our body means so to use our earthly body that men may actually see that these, our bodies, belong to God. So used our earthly bodies that others may see that these bodies that we inhabit actually belong to God. We refuse to use them for sinful acts. We reserve them wholly for obedience to God. We're blood-bought. We're not our own. This is his body, not mine. Those are his bodies out there, not yours. And we're called to glorify God in our bodies, which is a temple of his Holy Spirit. And the only way to do that is to walk as Jesus walked. That's it. To walk as Jesus walked. In John chapter 15, 4 through 5, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in me, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For with me you can do, without me you can do nothing. The acid test of the veracity of any person that makes a statement that they are abiding with the Lord, continue to abide in him and have fellowship, etc., is in fruit. The proof is the fruit. 
period. There's no other, you know, you've seen these little tracks. All you got to do is just confess your sin or need a Savior, sign your name here and pray this prayer, and just done. The only proof of conversion and the genuine conversion is right here, and it's fruit. Because there's a life in the fruit. <laughs> what is there? There's fruit on the limbs, on the vines. On, we are connected to the vine. There will be fruit. And as we grow in love for him, maybe you've already passed that point long ago. You know what Paul meant when he said, the love of Christ constrains me. The love of Christ constrains me to know the Lord's commands, to obey them. Not out of some fleshly motive, but the love of the Lord constrains me. And the more we walk in the Lord as he walked, the more that wonderful love is going to swell up in us for the Father. And it'll continue all the way to glory. All the way. Growing and growing and growing in love for him. And the byproduct of that growing and growing and growing for love for him is more and more and more obedience all the way home. May our God and our Father be daily praised from our lips with gratitude for his unspeakable gift in Christ Jesus. And from our lives as we live out our appointed time on this his earth for his honor and praise and glory. Let's pray. Holy Father, we want to obey you in all things. Father, we want to be known, all of us here, here in the auditorium, I trust, Lord, speaking for those who are tuning in through the internet. Lord, we want to be known not only by you for our obedience, but we want others to know that we are being obedient to you. We want our lives to be a witness. We want our lips, as we witness, to be unhindered by some, something that's not appropriate in our life. So, Lord, we pray for grace to obey you this day and every day for your honor and praise and glory. Because we love you, Master. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a hymn book and turn to hymn number 333. <clears throat> Join me by standing.